Good afternoon and welcome to Everyday Law. I'm your host, Bob Clark. Today we have a rare privilege. We have the estimable Benjamin Woolery Esquire, a lawyer from Prince George's County whom I have known for a great many years and whose area of expertise is guardianships, estates, and other fiduciary relationships. Welcome to the show, Ben. Thanks for having me. As always, this radio show does not reflect the views of Howard County Community College, and any of the opinions that we offer on this show are those of the show participants, and also do not take the things that are said on this show as specific legal advice for your individual legal problem. If you listen to this show and there's something that seems useful, it should guide you to a lawyer who has expertise in the field that we're talking about, in this case, something like getting a will, you go see somebody who does that. So keep that in mind when you hear what is said today. First of all, Ben, tell us a little bit about your background. Where did you grow up? What did you study? What's, what's your, your story? Well, um, thanks for asking that. Prince George's County in my whole life. Uh, came up here, played some soccer against uh, Howard Community College back in the 80s. <laughs> Good times. Uh, went to University of Baltimore on a soccer scholarship. Uh, spent three years there with a red shirt. Uh, they happened to cut out athletics then when I was there. But oh, uh, that experience encouraged me to change schools for uh, graduate school. Went to University of Maryland School of Law. Spent three years there. And uh, since 1988, I've been practicing law in Upper Marlboro, Maryland. So uh, so you're in the 30-year club. I'm in the 30-year club, exactly. Yeah, about 30 years ago uh, this week was when I started with my partner. He brought me in after the bar exam, uh, took the exam one time, sat there waiting, and lucky for me, I got my results. And uh, December 16th, I think, will be officially. Yeah. So... Was the nature of your work always these guardianships and estates and wills and fiduciary relationships, which we will explain? But. Well, well, yes, in a way, because uh, when I was in actually undergraduate school at University of Baltimore, took a took a class on a Monday afternoon because I wanted all my classes to be uh, one day a week in that semester. Uh, long story short, I had four classes on Mondays, and there was a class called the Politics of Aging. I had no idea what demographics was all about, but it was all about how the country was aging. So that turned me on to a topic, a, a label back then that was called elder law. And back then, nobody had even discussed broadly what elder law is. So, yes, yeah, since before I went to law school, I, I had an inkling to, to focus in this area. And uh, thankfully, I've been able to do it. And uh, so that's, that's how I kept into this niche. I think that I really first became aware of you when you were giving a presentation, I want to say to the MSB, the Maryland State Bar Association, on this particular topic some years ago. And I came and I saw you and I said, this guy knows a heck of a lot more about this than I do. I may have to rely on him going forward. Well, it's very county specific, so that's part of it. Uh, it is a, a statewide topic that we in Maryland have, guardianship. If you're listening and you're from D.C., they call it conservatorship there. So right there you have... Uh, one, you know, terminology point to be borne in mind, which is what is guardianship? And again, if you're in Washington, D.C., it's called conservatorship. Uh, we have a lot of different uses for that word guardianship here in Maryland, but uh, we don't really use conservatorship. So a guardianship, how does, well, why do people need them and how do you go about establishing them? Okay, well, we should first break it down. Guardianship is in different uh, scenarios. Okay. Um, my earliest use of guardianship was for minors. When a child, whether it be five months or five years or 15 years of age, didn't have a parent around to look out for them, in family law, we would get guardians 
for them. And, and typically, and I don't want to be sexist here, but it will be typically a grandmother. Okay. Uh, grandmother coming in because uh, maybe the child's parents have both died in a car accident, or maybe one of the parents is off in the military and mom's having a tough time with something, and so grandma needs to step in for that. So, uh, so one use of guardianship is for authority to speak on behalf of a minor when both of the parents are unable to do so. Okay. So in other words, a child can't speak for themselves, legally speaking. Is that right? That's exactly right. Uh, most importantly, we can't get a child into school without an adult figure signing them in to the school system. We can't get health care for a child unless some adult is willing to sign the line to have the child admitted for health care. And, you know, the other topic people would refer to uh, as needing parental authority would be a religious upbringing. So those are your kind of three primary areas that uh, it's necessary to have a, a guardian for a minor. Is there a particular age that is the cutoff for when you can start to act for yourself? 18. 18, 18 in Maryland is an absolute rule. Okay. And... Uh, you know, that, that's a good segue because sometimes we'll have people who are incapacitated from either birth or maybe from some childhood injury. We refer to them now as developmentally disabled. Okay. Uh, we have other terms from uh, more ancient times in Maryland law. At any rate, you will have 18-year-olds who cannot speak for themselves because they're cognitively unable to do so. And it's interesting because you would have thought by now in society, we would have had an automatic judicial process where a person goes down and files with the clerk of the court saying, this person needs a guardian and I need a, uh, a judge to appoint a guardian. We have them. We've had them since colonial times for minors. You know, we just address those, the five-month-olds, the five-year-olds, the 15-year-olds. Sure. But we have a huge percentage of our population that is 18 and they're not going to get better. And we don't have an automatic, let's walk into court and have a judge listen to the story and appoint a guardian for this adult. So, and if I may just say so, the mentally retarded population, this is a chronic problem where they do not appear to be incapacitated. Sure. And uh, a friend of ours from uh, Laurel, who I won't name, but he once sent me a case where a 25-year-old young man was in the 7-Eleven at the wrong time of day. There was a robbery. The police came in, arrested everybody, and here's this 25-year-old young man who's mentally retarded, has to spend some time locked up because there was no guardianship paperwork for him. So we applied for guardianship and got it documented. And now that young man, or probably in his 30s now, walks around with a piece of paper in his pocket to show that if for some reason he's in the wrong place at the wrong time, he's under guardianship, and it's just a piece of paper signed by a judge showing that he is a ward of the court. And what does that mean for him? Let's say he's in the wrong place at the wrong time and they arrest him next time. Is there any significance to having this piece of paper? The police officers would be very readily able to tap into the uh, Maryland court information system, Maryland Judiciary Case Search, and pull up the data and be able to confirm that, in fact, this individual has been declared incompetent. So, yes, the circuit courts of Maryland have these records. Uh, I think we'd all agree it's a pretty good database. Um, there are some privacy things once in a while with some of these guardianships where you can't necessarily pull up a file. But for the most part, when I go on that database, I can find most cases that I need to get confirmation of 
uh, someone's incapacity. So again, hypothetically using the example of the young man you were talking about, the police come and he hands them the piece of paper and they look it up. Does that then lead them to contact whoever has been made his guardian or, or what would the typical outcome be? I think the outcome would be more because what happened originally was he didn't have any paperwork on him of any kind to suggest that he had a limitation. He just got locked up. I think if he has the piece of paper in his pocket, I don't think he's going to have the mental acuity to pull it out. I think the police officers will find that piece of paper in his pocket and they'll see a declaration by a judge that this individual is incapacitated and his father, who at that time was his guardian, is appointed guardian and then they'll be able to track him to his address and treat him more humanely. So again, using him as an example, what happens if he doesn't want to have a guardian or he thinks he can act on his own and that sort of thing? Well, um, boy, that brings up a whole topic area because you're now embracing the entire adult population. And the enti- I might need a guardian, that's clear. But- uh, the entire adult population, we have a lot of people with limitations. And I think some, you can say some, I'm, I'm not a doctor of medicine, I'm a doctor of laws, as you gentlemen are. Sure. So I can't speak to specific medical conditions, but for the most part, let's say that 25-year-old man, his condition, that population with that impairment, that's a very cooperative or readily determinable population. But frankly, you know, some of the folks, gentlemen, we've all been at the bar for 30 and more years. So our generation, if I may say, the 50, 60-year-old people, we might have something that comes and afflicts us where we are not so cooperative when that incapacitating event, whether it be a stroke. My favorite ones are the uh, Wernicke-Korsakoff syndrome, which is better referred to as alcoholism. Ah. Those folks, when you apply for guardianship over them, will be very belligerent in, in saying that I don't need a guardian. So your question is, what about a person who is the subject of a guardianship request where the circuit court has been asked to impose a guardianship on them, but it's not obvious that they need a guardian, and the person actually speaks up and says, I don't need a guardian. So the way it's supposed to work, and I think I might have said maybe it was off air, these are very county-specific things sometimes. The Maryland rules tell us that upon the filing for a guardianship, if the paperwork appears to be in order, if you appear to have your physician certificates, you need two of those, and you need about an eight-page document to go along with it, if you have that paperwork, the court is supposed to appoint an attorney for the allegedly disabled person. Sometimes it can be an attorney that's familiar with the family. Maybe the attorney had worked for the disabled person and will often offer that, that there's a prior relationship of trust between the alleged disabled and a member of the bar. Uh, In any event, uh, in each county, there is considered to be a judge in charge of guardianships. Obviously, there's some small counties where only one judge is the entire circuit court bench. But so they're really in charge of guardianships. Exactly. And then in your more urban jurisdictions, you'll have you know one judge out of 20. Okay. Um, and so that's the procedure. Within a matter of days, an attorney will be appointed for that person, and then a process starts that can go in all sorts of directions. Does this sometimes get misused? Um, well— I guess you can see people not understanding the way in which guardianship is to be used. Um, I think Maryland's system, to, to my perspective, is a fairly precise process. 
Uh, folks want to modify, and in fact, there's a set of rules up for modification of guardianship. Again, it happens about every year, uh, tweaks and, and shifts and changes. Uh, but generally speaking, Maryland is very clear on how you get guardianship. You need two healthcare professionals to sign up that this person is unable to manage either themselves or maybe they've got some property and they can't manage their property. So if you get two healthcare professionals who state as much, then uh, then you can file. So it's a very good to me uh, way of 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 winnowing out the wheat from the chaff. That that if a family member wants to file for guardianship against another family member to to grind an axe, it's not really a very good legal tool mechanism for, for it. that. It's not a good mechanism for that because you got to find two healthcare professionals willing to say as much. Now there are many people who do file for guardianship. They file it as we see these days, typically done by people without the benefit of an attorney. They think they can do this. They don't do the certificates. They don't want to do the certificates. They know that the certificates will never be obtained, but they file for guardianship to create angst and consternation within their family. That 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 sort of thing does happen. Does it happen more frequently now because of all the pro se uh, and when you say pro se, people acting without a lawyer. Right. What we, I guess the, the ter- term now is self-represented litigants. Uh, we have a whole network of documents that folks are familiar with through that. If, is it happening more than it did before? I don't know. I can't say. I, I wouldn't really know. I, I can certainly guess, but I'm going to try to not guess about that kind of thing. The types of guardianships that you're talking about where you need a certificate from two doctors, those are for adult guardianships. This would not be required with children who are in need of a guardian because a parent becomes disabled or goes to jail or something like that. There are different guardianships and what you've just been talking about with the doctor certificates, just for the audience, to be yes. clear, has, only, I, I, has I, only to do with, with adults, since there was a segue sort of from yes. children to adults. You're absolutely right that the, the two healthcare professional certificates is in your, can we say, run-of-the-mill adult guardianships. Now, there's a whole subset where the alleged disabled adult is a veteran. So if a veteran is the subject of a filing, there's a whole additional string of of rules and sub-rules that apply to that context. And that's part of the uh, proposed amendments that are before the Court of Appeals right now. And interestingly, in 30 years, I've never done a guardianship over a veteran. Hmm. And I, that's, uh, as I reflected upon it, seeing these rules, I thought, you know, I've never done one for a, for, for a veteran. And the only reason that you would do a guardianship for an adult would be that the adult can't take care of himself or herself. Is that right? Excellent question. Uh, the answer is no. If what you said is correct, plus that adult failed when they were able to do so, to sign a power of attorney document. So we have two types of power of attorney documents in Maryland, basically. Financial power of attorney and healthcare power of attorney. Some attorneys will put those two documents in the same document. I think that's very rare these days. Uh, Usually you see it done in two separate documents. And really, uh, as a general rule of thumb, I would suggest that for one-tenth of the cost, most attorneys will draft you a power of attorney document, and it's more important for financial affairs than it is for healthcare matters. For one-tenth of the cost of a guardianship, you can get a financial power of attorney document, stick it in your fireproof box 
wherever you keep your important papers, hopefully in your home somewhere, not in the bank at the safe deposit box, not a good place when you need the document on a Saturday night. Um, and so, yes, we need guardianships for adults who can't make decisions for themselves and they've neglected to sign a power of attorney document. And they are so readily available now. They're a statutory form from about 2010. Very easy to put together. But I have a question for you. Does that power of attorney only become effective when the person becomes disabled? The presumption now is no. It is effective immediately. But in the standardized form, which is about six pages long, there's a section, as my work processor kicks it out, near the bottom of the fourth page, eight lines of special instructions. And that's where you put in that sort of limitation or expansion question. You know? well, well, the reason I bring that up is perhaps a person wouldn't want to give a power of attorney to another while they are competent and able to take care of their own affairs. But maybe they want to avoid, as you say, the need to file a petition for guardianship should they become a victim of Alzheimer's disease or something like that. Right. So they could prepare a power of attorney that would not become effective until they were incapable of acting on their behalf. And perhaps you could put language in it that says, upon a certification of two doctors, this power of attorney becomes effective for so-and-so. Is that a possibility? In other words, I don't want to give a power of attorney to someone while I am able. Right. Well, that is the standard question with most client interviews about 25 minutes into the conversation. Well, I'm glad and I covered that. Then. Yes, and, and it's a double-edged sword because of this. Most doctors do not want to be on the hook for that determination. They don't want the family pointing fingers at them and saying, you said he was incompetent when he wasn't. So... What you really have to get the clients to understand is it's more important for them to ask a simple question of themselves. Whoever I'm picking to be my guardian, do I trust them? If I trust them, then presumably they won't run off with this paperwork and close out that bank account that I've got. Because that's what they can do with that power of attorney, even if I am competent. And I decide to prepare for my, my golden years when perhaps I won't be competent. If I were to have a ne'er-do-well as a power of attorney, they could simply go to the bank, take every penny I have. They could sell my house. They could take my car. And it would all be legal, even if I objected to it and said, wait a minute, I didn't want you to take my money out of the bank. I didn't want you to take my retirement. I didn't want you to take my car and retitle it into your child's name. They would say, I'm sorry, you gave me that legal ability. Right. And the audience can't see it, but without scripting, I've been nodding my head the whole time, everything you said, because that's the fear. And I always tell my clients, I don't care if you're creating a will, I don't care if you're creating a trust, or if you're simply creating a power of attorney document. If you don't trust these people, then don't put them on the document. Uh, You don't want to build in hurdles within the document to people you trust where it says, I appoint my daughter Joni to be my agent, provided that she gets Dr. Smith and Dr. Jones to sign on to it as well. Do I, tr- do I trust my daughter Joni? Then let's just trust that Joni will use the proper uh, authority when the time is ripe. Um, uh, personally, one of my techniques, though, is to cr- try to minimize family angst. I do routinely, because most families are you know standard middle-class families, the parents have one house. They have three kids or five kids. I will typically put into that document, the agent has authority over my real estate, 
provided that he or she gets one of their siblings to sign the deed as well. That way there's kind of a family process mm -hmm. uh, to it. Um, so that's really an important thing for the audience to remember, which is it may seem difficult to spend a couple hundred dollars or probably three or four hundred dollars for a power of attorney document, but it's so much better than filing at a court, having to pay somebody to prepare the papers, having to pay also for the court-appointed attorney, and then after about four months, you easily see $4,000 of family money going out to pay for the creation of a guardianship. What you're talking about is when a person is no longer competent, they can't sign a power of attorney. And in that instance, if they're not competent, they have to get a guardianship to allow that person to act on their behalf. That requires a court hearing and a court order. But if the person is competent and enters into a power of attorney while competent, then if they over the years become aged and perhaps develop Alzheimer's and they're no longer competent, the power of attorney that they executed years earlier grants the person they want to be their guardian all of the powers that a guardian would have, and you wouldn't have to go to court, and you wouldn't have to have a hearing. Exactly. Okay. It sounds to me as though there's a group of documents that might be beneficial for people to think about going forward for when they age and when they pass away. And I would presume you think it's useful to have a will. Yes. Okay. And why is a will an important document? Well, the will is an important document for one reason at least. Okay. And that is a, and, and your typical scenario is a parent deciding which child is to execute their instructions in that will. And most families do have, you know, the most mature adult child in the family. Let's just face it. Sure. Uh, and that right there saves the family routinely at least 30 days. So does that mean Bob and I can never be personal reps because we've never become mature adult children? That's pretty much the case, and your wives both told me that last night. Very good. <laughs> yep. So Will helps decide who's going to be in charge of, of somebody's assets, their estate, when they pass away. And also maybe their minor children. Ah. They will as a mechanism as well for that uh, nomination of who should be the guardian of my minor children. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And that's where you get into some serious conversations where in my family personally, I don't know how you guys played it out, but uh, in my family, at one time we had a, three little kids and more than that in terms of adult excuse me for being sexist, adult female candidates to be guardian of our children, to raise them and nurture them. I can't speak for your all personal experiences, but in my family, that process winnowed itself down to one good person <laughs> to uh, have done the job of raising my kids. Lucky for my kids, they're all adults now, and they don't have to worry about which aunt was going to take care of them. <laughs> of course, all my family members are wonderful, and I would trust any of them with my life. Well said. So, will is a good idea for determining who would raise your children if you were to pass away before they were adults. It's good for determining who's going to be in charge of distributing your assets and, you know, if they sell the family home, that sort of thing. I would presume it's also useful in terms of if you decide it would be better to leave a little more to somebody who is at some disadvantage and a little less to somebody else who's doing well, that kind of thing. Exactly. If you choose to do that, those are the ways to do that. Uh, if you don't have a will, it gets just divided amongst your offspring in equal shares and it passes down to them in that fashion. So, And oh, the courts get involved more 
more so if there's no will. Is that right? I can't say that the court gets more involved. I can say that there are families where a parent passes away without a will, and the children, the adult children, sort it out amongst themselves, and they know who the most responsible one is, and it gets taken care of literally without any judge being involved at all. How does that play out for any creditors of the deceased? Yeah, Maryland's got a very good rule. Creditors for a deceased have six months from the date of death to pay $3 and file a piece of paper called a claim form at the probate court. Now, that's the easy black letter rule to give you and the audience. There are situations where people trip up and lose the ability to benefit from that rule. How do you know the person died? That's the beauty of Maryland's rule. Let's hope we never do away with it. That is not the surviving family member's problem. The creditors are supposed to know when their debtor is no longer around. And if they are making as they will, especially the credit card companies, that phone call to the household when that payment is late and on the 39th day Amex is calling the house, they will find out from most households that mom or dad has passed away. But the family that's come uh, come into a law firm like mine early in the process and been told just hang up the phone politely (laughs) might miss a claim by those creditors in that six months. And you can save not just hundreds, but thousands of dollars sometimes. You could pay the attorney's fees can be paid for through that savings just by not telling the credit card companies uh, that mom or dad passed away. We've had some pretty interesting ones where the typically a guy will have you know, 24 different credit cards for a lifestyle that he probably couldn't afford to maintain. But because the creditors didn't know he passed away and their claims were filed eight months after death, well, that's a tardy claim. Interesting. Yeah, Maryland's probate law is very beneficial in that regard. So we need a will. You need some sort of paper associated with a power of attorney for both health purposes and also for dealing with your assets if you're not dead but you're incapacitated. Exactly. That should be sufficient. Okay. Should be. And so when we talk about the area of fiduciary law, we're talking about an area where one person acts on behalf of another. Isn't that right? Exactly. Ben, can you just tell us what a fiduciary is? That's a person who is trusted typically with something of value like money or real estate. And their job is to hold that for the benefit of the true owner. And hopefully while they're holding it, nothing happens to it that jeopardizes it or makes it, uh, you know, perhaps lose its value. Uh, You know, stock is a dangerous thing to be fiduciary of, you know. But cash in the bank is an easy one and and automobiles are easy to. So do fiduciaries get paid? There are mechanisms in Maryland law for payment of fiduciaries in pretty much every context. In the guardianship case, at the end of a year, you file a report. Many counties in circuit court guardianships for adults will have a clerk that processes your annual report and then does some calculations to show what the compensation is going to be. In the orphans courts, where we see most of the guardianship of minor situations, the practitioner has to be a little more helpful to the court and its clerks and put together an order that does all the calculations. Uh, these are my experiences. I'm not sure what they do, especially like, you know, on the Eastern Shore. I can't speak to that too well. Um, and, you know, I, I see, situa- see situations where somebody is the fiduciary of somebody else's money. There is no formal trust. There is no formal 
uh, guardianship. But we know that the, you know, let's say, let's stop being sexist for a minute and say the youngest son is taking care of dad's money. And I tell the family, well, that person is earning his keep. So at the end of the year, we do a tabulation. I show them the code sections and I do all the work up to show why they should get, you know, $1,785. Where does the money come from, though? I mean, I well, presume a lot of these people don't have much. Uh, no, I don't think that's really the case. I okay. think I think uh, most people do have sufficient wealth that uh, there's uh, a need for somebody to manage it. Sure. And so they'll write a check and they'll put on the memo line commissions for the year 2017. Okay. And uh, they'll get their compensation for the year. Um and then you leave, leave them the worksheet so they can show their siblings, well, here it is, and here's the States and Trust Section 7-whatever it is. And if anybody wants to question it, Maryland law books are fairly rarely available to most of us uh, over the Internet or in a law library. And you can see it's all mathematical. Um, and it's very much the same calculations that the guardianship clerks as a final matter, so we don't send Howard County Community College students racing off to become fiduciaries everywhere, um, I would presume that you must carry out your duties in a competent way and you don't want to self-deal and that sort of thing. Absol There's potential liability for you as a fiduciary is what I'm trying to say. Absolutely. There's liability for it. And furthermore, even the people who are doing this work, when they see that money at the end of the year, it's a pittance. It, they're usually doing this out of devotion to their parent, out of a, a desire to keep things uh, uh, well documented, and what's the terminology we use these days? Transparent, right? Transparent. And it is not per hour very much compensation at all in most situations. These are middle class situations and it's not big big bucks i got you well i'd like to thank you very much ben for appearing on everyday law hope to have you back in the future final word on this i'd just like to send a shout out to a good friend of the three of ours alan and ben and mine kathy kester who recently passed away and who was really one of the deans of the fiduciary law world and is greatly missed indeed yes she is amen